So what I thought we'd do is uh, talk about, and I've got some passages picked out, you know, to start with and all, and then talk about uh, the, the whole thing of all of us as individuals, and then, of course, conveying it to others and all also, but what's involved in actually trying to reach people that are not Christian and, and bring them to Christ along the line that we talked, you know, up there at Kingsport on the on having home Bible studies and all. But uh, obviously that uh, we, we all know and, and believe that uh, that is a not only a command, it's something that if you didn't have the command, that uh, uh, if, if you actually believe this information and believe it's right, there's no way in the world you can have any feeling for humanity at all and not have a desire to get that information out. So if the, if the command wasn't there, just the thing of love of neighbor would take over and you would, have a, you would have a desire to get that out. What I believe personally is that although we don't do it in the church as a whole uh, in, in this country to the extent it should be, I don't believe it's because we don't have a, you know, people who uh, love God and who love also their, their fellow man and all. I believe the problem is uh, this area of the best way to approach it. And I think that, uh, that uh, one of the reasons that the Jewel Miller film strip was so popular years back and so many people wound up obeying the gospel and all is that whatever deficiency it may have had, and I, looking back, I definitely believe it had some deficiencies, but whatever the deficiency, it was something that, that anybody could use. And so when you went to somebody's house, uh, or you had them to your house, even if you did not think of yourself as a great public speaker, or you were a little uh, hesitant about whether or not you could handle the questions that come up, uh, that film strip was your format. And so you knew that, hey, it's going to take 35 minutes to show that film strip. That's going to lead into questions and everything. And, and if I don't accomplish anything, they're going to learn something by just seeing that. And I think in the same way that, uh, that people are willing if they know how to do it and, and know how to use the information. And so what I'd like to do is, is note just how the approach was. We're going to look at some sermons in the book of Acts to start with, and then another look at some material in Romans. And then after doing that, we're going to look at our situation today and, and ask ourselves the question, uh, just what kind of an audience are we dealing with of those that are not Christian and, and what are the things that that actually need to be said to these people. And basically, what we'll show in these first examples is that every single sermon, without exception, and I'm not even using the example of Jesus on this, we could use several there, but every time uh, that Christians or believers were in a situation where they was trying to persuade somebody to also be a believer, they were always meeting those people exactly where they were. Wherever they were, uh, whatever their condition of belief or unbelief, uh, their condition of morality or immorality, but the key to their success uh, lie in the fact that they were always meeting those people exactly where they're at. And I believe one of the reasons that, that many today, as groups that we're not reaching, is that I really don't believe that we're meeting the people in the world where they're at. And I think to the extent that we can do it. Uh, another book I just read recently that I thought was exceptionally good, uh, this 
book title. I can't pronounce his last name. Cliff, K-N-E-C-H-T-L-E, however that would be pronounced. Uh, give me an answer. This guy's on, we talk about uh, the difficulty in reaching people that are not Christian. This guy's an open-air preacher. He went to uh, seminary, you know, gave up his career and everything, went to seminary, wanted to preach. And after he got out, uh, there was not anybody wanting to really hire him because he was apparently, you know, they didn't, whether he wasn't impressive enough or polished enough or what, but there was just no uh, real congregations that were breaking down any doors trying to get at him. But he wanted to preach, and so he made the decision he would become an open-air preacher. And so he goes into the bars, he goes into the parks, uh, he just goes out and meets people. He preaches on the street corner. Uh, he's been called names and, and things like that, but he does it. And, you, and on the surface, you might say, well, I can't do this, and I'm not saying that everybody can do it. And you might also say he's uh, a little bit of a nut that God doesn't expect you to do that kind of thing. But before I say any more, let me tell you, he's, he's uh, had a part in converting thousands of people uh, and, and leading them uh, to Christ. And when asked uh, what happened to him, he became so successful that the Campus Crusade for Christ heard about him and that now he is supported by them. In other words, they heard about the work he was doing and, and I guess he could have a church somewhere if he wanted now. But he's so successful in the meeting people where they're at, that don't, the people that don't go to church, that they want him out there, you know, and they're, they're supporting him full time. But anyway, in, in ask the question, uh, what he was doing that, you know, that was causing him to be so successful in uh, bringing people to Christ, that's the way he answered it, is the fact that uh, he was just simply meeting people where they were at, that whatever questions that they had, and in other words, when when he goes into the park or wherever he's at and he starts to speak, what he's really doing is just introducing the material in just a short speech that will lead to questions, and, and he's really going to pursue the questions and, and go from there. In fact, the book is on the type of questions that, that people have you know, concerning Christianity. Uh, turn over to uh, Acts 2, and we're not going to read this. We're all familiar with this sermon, and we're just interested in... Uh, for right now, noticing this one principle, not, not so much the content of the sermon, but noticing the fact that this sermon uh, was perfectly adapted uh, to that particular audience. Look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Okay, you have the day of Pentecost. They're together in one place. Look at verse 5. There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Okay, the one translation renders that devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Your audience is devout Jews who believe very strongly in God. Okay, now, these people are also very biased against Christ. Uh, as will come out in the sermon, many of these people were there when they crucified Jesus and actually wanted him put to death. Uh, Another thing we can pretty well guess concerning this audience, it's Pentecost. And the Jews had three times during the year when they would come home to Jerusalem to worship. And uh, this was one of the times Passover was another one. So 50 days earlier, uh, thousands and thousands of Jews had come to Jerusalem at the Passover, and this is when Jesus was crucified. Well, now 50 days later, we've had this tomb emptied, 
you know, it's been empty for, you know, on the third day, and then people have been talking about it all these days now, and here you've got this group of people here on Pentecost. So a number of these people saw Jesus crucified. All of them have heard about it. All of them are aware that that tomb is empty and nobody can explain it. All of them are aware that people claim to have, have seen him, and they're devout Jews, and they actually thought they was doing the will of God when they crucified him. Okay, so in this background, beginning with uh, uh, chapter, or verse 16, the first thing that Peter does after the Holy Spirit is poured out is he quotes Joel. Okay, they of course would know that passage because they'd read it and had studied Joel, and he lets them know that what's happening here is in fulfillment of what Joel has said. Then, in verse 22, uh, look at verse, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by mirac miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, this audience knows about the miracles of Jesus. Some of them may have seen some of those miracles. Keep in mind, they didn't reject Jesus uh, because of, of a lack of miracles. And some who saw miracles rejected him. It was for blasphemy they rejected him. The fact that he claimed to be the Son of God. They would have accepted Jesus as just another prophet. But the fact he claimed to be the Son of God. So these people have had a part in crucifying him. He quotes Joel. He reminds them of the miracles that they have saw and turned away from. All right, now he uh, uh, have seen, okay. He uh, now, in speaking of the resurrection, quotes David in verse 25. And David spoke of somebody that was, that was going to be put to death, but his body would not see corruption. And so he then convinces them that David wasn't speaking of himself because David did die and his body did see corruption. So he said he was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. Then he comes down and he quotes David again in verse uh, 34. Uh, he quotes Psalms 110 and, uh, and verse 1. And then after quoting and interpreting these prophecies, giving the eyewitness account of his resurrection, and, and, and pointing out that he was raised in fulfillment of this prophecy, then he reaches verse 36 and he says, Therefore, in light of everything I've said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the apostles, What shall we do? Okay, 3,000 of them repented and were baptized on that occasion. All right, now, let's note several things here. First, all of us have, have been taught that uh, in various ways that whatever people have been taught from their childhood, uh, that you're probably not going to change them. Have you ever heard the statement that uh, if the Catholic Church raises somebody to their seven years of age, you can just hang it up, that uh, you will not reach those, those people? Uh, we have the Freudian psychology that would have us believe that you're going to be locked in all your life to you know, whatever experiences and everything that you've had as a child. And, and we believe this so strongly that if we uh, find out a person is very strong in a particular group, even though we may believe there's wrong things in that group, we just have a tendency to, to not want to get engaged in any discussion there. It's like, well, there's no way in the world you convince that person. Well, note here, these people were totally biased against Jesus. Many of them had a part in crucifying him. 
he was not the Messiah they were looking forward to. Uh, they were looking for a physical kingdom. He, talked, he, he brought a spiritual one. They were looking for a kingdom whose headquarters were in Jerusalem. He said God was going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. They were looking for a Messiah that would live forever on this earth. He was crucified. Uh, the eternal life was going was to be in heaven, not, not, not here on this earth. Uh, they had all kinds of misunderstandings, totally biased against it, but yet 3,000 of them become converted. Uh, you and I regularly, forget about religion now, you and I regularly as we go through life change our minds about various things. Uh, I don't know how it's affected all of you all in various ways, but I know Barbara and I have talked several times that that our eating habits have been totally revamped to what they were 15 or so years ago. Just totally revamped. Uh, when, when I was young and in my 20s, I'd sit down to breakfast and I'd eat two or three eggs and some sausage and a glass of whole milk and, and some uh, biscuits and whatnot, and I just thought that was great. And, and then I would eat country ham with that ham gravy poured all over everything. And, and, and that's what we had just about every breakfast or something. That was my favorite breakfast. Then at uh, dinner, you know, if I could get home, if I didn't have a steak, it was because I couldn't afford it. But if I could afford it, I had. I wanted, and the bigger, the better. You know, and the vegetables were there for the trimming. Well, I've changed my whole approach to eating uh, simply because of information. And uh, it's not that I don't like or not attracted to some of that other. It, the attraction is still there. But I've been fully convinced that in our society we eat too much animal fat and that, uh, that I will probably be healthier and live longer if I eat more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and eat a smaller amount of meat. And so we, we've totally revamped. We were converted uh, just based on, on that information. Well, you could probably think of any number of things where you have changed your thinking just because somebody gave you information. Now, how many times have you had certain opinions about a certain person. And then after you got to know that person, you change your opinion completely. Have you ever met this person that at first meeting you didn't like? And then you come to really like that person. Or you've heard a lot of negative things, and then after you have experience with that person, you change your view and you think, hey, well, they've missed it. Or sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes you've heard a lot of positive things about a person and then you come to be around him and you don't feel that way. You, you change your thinking. So all through life you change your thinking. We all do. We're, we're, our personalities are not a static thing. They're, they're evolving. And our information is always changing. So we can say that I think that that is an absolute falsehood. That no matter what people believe, it is possible to change them through information. Now, we also know that, that people sometimes do not change even though they see the right information and agree to it because there may be things that they're going to have to do in repentance that they don't want to do. But you don't really know that until they get the information. So I'm saying one step in the right direction is to get it in our minds that no matter what a person's background, whether he's atheist, infidel, agnostic, orthodox background, Catholic background, Jehovah's Witness, or are, are somebody that is strictly in the world, it is possible to change that type of person through information. And, and here, these people were totally changed, and 3,000 of them, many of which that, according to the context, had a part in crucifying him, actually became Christians. And I think if we have that, 
that puts more of a burden on us when we talk to people instead of just writing people off so easily and thinking, hey, so what that he believes that? That uh, he's not necessarily a terrible person or she that based on the information they're operating on, that may very well be a logical position. You know, it's sort of like uh, John Clayton and Hugh Ross both make the point that based on the information they were operating on when they made the decision to become an atheist, it was a logical decision. Uh, you and I would say illogical, but we, we've never operated on the kind of information, you know, that they were operating on when they became that. Okay, so we see that people can change. We also see that this sermon went right to the heart of the matter, and it met their need. All right, now let's notice something else about the sermon. In order to meet their specific need, did this sermon have the possibility of being very uh, confrontational and, uh, and maybe giving them, causing them some problems or somebody getting mad or something like that? Did it have that kind of potential? Uh, okay, I think, I think so. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you this. I think there are times that we do know what the need is and, and where we ought to be. But because of a dislike for confrontation and argument or running the risk of, of damning you know, friendship and all, we sometimes purposely avoid where we know the need is. That, uh, we, that we'll talk sometimes all around uh, whatever the actual need is and, and never zero in on that particular need. And I'm not saying there's not a place for talking around and building a relationship, but I'm saying that, uh, that somewhere along the line, you have to zero in on the particular need. Here, uh, they went right to, we might say, for the juggler. They just went right to the specific need. All right, now, it says they were talking to devout people, the people that were God-fearing individuals. I think that no matter what the possibility of confrontation, if you size a person up as, as being somebody that, that really, you know, is concerned about truth, then you're more apt, you can be more apt to know you're going to be successful in the process. I mean that uh, no matter how it may hit that individual, if you size that individual up as somebody that really is concerned about truth, then there's a good chance that even if it, it does hit them in a wrong way, that they're going, to, they're going to think about that. Okay, turn over to the next place uh, in the eighth chapter. Beginning with verse 26, again, we're familiar with the uh, material, so we're just, we're just looking at it from our aspect tonight, is the fact that uh, the audience was at a certain place, and the person converting him was directly meeting that need. Okay, Philip is told to go down, and uh, he goes down to the, meet the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, now notice uh, the characteristic of this guy. In verse uh, 27... Last part of the verse, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, okay? And he's on his way home, sitting in the chariot, reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet. Well, obviously, if this guy has gone all the way to Jerusalem to worship, it's one of these feast times, and he's back reading in his chariot, obviously he's devout. Uh, you don't have to prove to this man about the existence of God. You don't have to prove to him that the Old Testament scriptures are inspired of God. And that here is a very devout person who is studying. All right, now, let's see if he gives, uh, okay, he goes down, he's been to Jerusalem, 
and then he's on his way back and he's reading from Isaiah the prophet. Now, you know, for years I used to think as a, when I read that, of course he's reading Isaiah 53rd chapter of prophecy about Christ. Wasn't it just interesting, a natural coincidence that he was just happened to be reading Isaiah the 53rd chapter uh, at the time that the unit come up. And then I thought about that, you know, a lot of, every time I'd read that, and I think, what an unusual coincidence, you know, that he's reading the exact perfect spot. But then I thought, this guy has been to Jerusalem, and Jesus was crucified. There was an empty tomb three days later, and now since Pentecost, thousands of people have been converted to Christianity. There is no way in the world that guy could have, could have gone to Jerusalem and not be aware of the fact that, that this man who is reported, performed all these miracles, was crucified, and three days later his tomb was empty, and his disciples were running all over the place telling everybody that they were eyewitnesses and he had raised, been raised from the dead, and thousands of people had already been converted. There's no way that, that he could have gone there and not come in contact with that. I'm saying, I don't believe it's any accident that he's reading Isaiah 53. I think that is a prophecy of the Messiah, and, and, and this was one of the key verses, passages that was used by the Christians. And I think he's really studying on that thing, trying to figure it out. So Philip goes up and asks him, did he understand what he was reading? Uh, he expressed a desire for help. Uh, Philip starts right there. And it's in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and it says in verse 35, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. The end result is he's baptized. Well, there again... You don't find anything in the sermon trying to prove to him that God exists. I mean, it, it, uh, it would have been crazy, really, a total waste of time trying to prove to this guy that God exists. There's nothing there trying to prove to him that the prophets were inspired. He already believed that. But he just simply started where he was at and went ahead and told him and then showed him how perfectly this information about Jesus fit what he was reading in Isaiah 53. So here again we have somebody who has not been brought up as a Christian, who his whole background would have been biased against Jesus. He's obviously, when he went to Jerusalem, he didn't, make, he didn't become a Christian there, and he's heard all of this, but Philip is able to take that passage that he did not understand. All right, now we notice something in understanding passages. Why is it that Philip understood it so well, and this eunuch is reading it, and he, and he can't understand it? Well, that... Uh, Think about Isaiah 53 without the advantage of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can tell that there's a suffering servant, and, and, he's gonna, and it's full of paradoxes. He's going to die and be victorious, and he's going to be rejected and accepted. Uh, and so there's, there's all kinds of paradoxes within it. But then when you have this information about Christ, it just, it's so perfect, you could put it as a conclusion uh, of it. All right. A lot of times, when a person doesn't understand something, it's simply because that the other materials that are needed to understand it, that person is simply unaware of. All right. In teaching others, one of the things we can see then is that the better student that we are of the Bible, there's, just no, there's no escaping uh, the, the fact that we're going to have to be a good student of the Bible if we're going to lead others. Because the very passage that he's trying to understand, that what is going to be involved in helping him understand it, is other passages of the Bible that, 
bear on that particular point. Now, one thing we've got too much of in religion, and that is that people who read a passage and then take it upon themselves to interpret the passage without making sure that they have read everything else on that subject. In fact, uh, uh, a lot of people who believe they have the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, they seem to think that they can just read and then the Holy Spirit is helping them to understand that. And so then the way it sounds to them, that's the way that they interpret it. Uh, but I think we can see right here that no matter what anybody thinks they've got, you're going to have to have more information to bring to bear. And so we can see that, that if we're going to help others, there's no substitute for regularly reading the Bible through. And when I, when I emphasize regular, you can have a good intuitive understanding of the Bible. But if you're sitting down studying with somebody and trying to help him understand a passage that he doesn't understand, you literally, in order to help him, are going to have to be able to know the other passages that you can bring to bear on that. And, and I don't know any way that a person can get that except through regularly reading it. And as you regularly read it, then all of it just begins to fall into place in your mind so that you've just got a pretty good idea where all that information is and you've got all that in your mind. So what you're doing when you interpret it you're literally bringing all that to bear on, on that passage of Scripture. So, so there's no substitute. You and I can interpret this just like Philip did after we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if Philip had had a copy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, this guy wouldn't have had any problem with, with Isaiah 53 also. Okay, again, he meets him exactly where he's at. Now, come over to the 17th chapter of Acts. Now, let's take the time to read this from starting in verse 16. Uh, Barbara, start with you. Verse 16, of, uh, and let's read on to the end of the chapter. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic, Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians, Athenians. Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and that 
and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by God's design and skill. In the past, God's God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world and with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this <coughs> to all men by raising him from the dead. <coughs> when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, uh, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Diophysus, or something, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Jarvis, and a number of others. Okay. Um, <coughs> notice, first of all, in the part of Paul's sermon that was quoted, how many, how many prophecies are quoted in this context? There's none. We're, look at our audience here. At first, he's, he's reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing God -fearing Greeks. And then he goes out in the marketplace, and then we have the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans would have been very similar to the humanists of today. Uh, they rejected God. They did not believe in the resurrection. The Stoics did believe in God, and they did believe in the resurrection. So those are two philosophical backgrounds there, but they're also, even though they believe in God, the Stoics, their gods are these pagan idols. Okay, now, Paul starts with them concerning their concept of God. And what he basically does is, is just reason with them and show them that uh, this concept of God that he is bringing is much more logical than the one they believed. He said, I mean, after all, it doesn't stand to reason that the God that created everything that is wasn't, wouldn't dwell in some temple made by human hands or couldn't be represented in, in some physical way. I think it's interesting that uh, truth is logical. Uh, I mean, that if something doesn't sound logical, and yet it is true, I, I believe the reason it doesn't sound logical is probably because we don't have all the facts. But truth necessity, of necessity is logical. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind when we present this to people in the world. It is logical. Uh, if it's truth, it is logical, and it will sound that way to the, to the human mind. All right, You regularly, in discussion with people, just in your everyday discussion, one of your first tests of uh, the truthfulness of what another person says uh, is determined by the, whether or not it sounds logical to your mind. And if somebody is, is telling you something that does not sound logical to your mind, I don't care how straightforward he says it or anything, uh, you're not going to buy into it. It just doesn't sound logical. On the other hand, if it does sound very logical to your mind, that doesn't mean that you'll believe it 
uh, right away. You, you still know there's a possibility it's not so. But you will be at least willing to say, hey, there's a possibility that that's, that's right. Okay? Everybody out there is made in the image of God. And the concept of God as given in the scriptures is logical to the mind. Now, one of the things John Clayton does a good job on, and that is pointing out that many people who have rejected God have rejected a God that really is illogical to the mind. I mean, such as the old man in the sky and things like that. And that Christians really are at fault in, in proclaiming uh, some, of the, some of the methods we've used to, to preach and represent God. Uh, actually do more damage than good. So he reasons with them, uh, takes advantage of the fact that they had an idol to the unknown God. So in other words, they're, they're saying there's maybe a God out there we don't know. And he says, okay, here, here he is, you know. Here's the one you don't know. And he goes ahead and introduces them to him. All right, then, notice another thing he does. Their Greek poets had hit on a particular truth in, in making observations about God. And so he doesn't quote David, uh, he quotes their Greek poet because the poet hit on an observation of truth. And so here, it is, since we are, he says in verse 29, since we are God's offspring, in other words, uh, as one of your poets have said, where's his offspring? So they had bought into this. They believed what that poet said in his observation about God. And so Paul, this was a truth that they believed in. And so Paul took advantage of it and used it. All right. I think that in our society, again, today, that the more we know about anything that will help us communicate to others, uh, then the better off we are in, try, in trying to reach that individual. And if somebody out there in the world who is not a Christian has hit upon some great truth that is taught in the Bible, I think it's to our advantage to quote that person. And I think that... Uh, both uh, Ross and John Clayton do a good job in their presentations of quoting only scholars in the scientific realm. In fact, uh, uh, Mark, do you remember when we, the thing down at John's, the guy that was the uh, biologist that worked out the problem on the board, the observation he made is that everything that we need is, is actually given by evolutionary scientists who are not Christian. And so if you get up there and you quote a preacher or a Christian, it's like it's almost a turn off to these people anyway. They think either they don't know it or they're biased or whatnot. But he said it's ten times more effective to quote one of their own. That if you can quote uh, uh, Jay Kood or Carl Sagan or somebody like that, then that's pretty, or Albert Einstein, and then that's pretty impressive to them. Well, Paul here quoted one of their own poets who hit on a truth. Well, in our society, just like, let's uh, give an example of what we're saying, anybody that has is, is gone through our high school system now, now we're up, all up in age, but for the younger, uh, like uh, Mark over here, and, and also the Mark Moore, and probably Mark also, that it wasn't there when I was age, but now evolution is taught as a fact all the way through the books you had in school, right? Now, you see, it wasn't when I was in high school. Uh, it was very, very limited coverage, but for you all it was. Well, I don't believe you can go through high school and not be aware of the Big Bang Theory and know that that is a prevalent theory now. Uh, I don't believe you can go through high school and take any science at all, and especially if you go into college, and not be aware of the expanding universe. Uh, 
and, and some things about Einstein's theory of relativity and things of that nature. Well, you can take that material. When we get into a discussion with somebody about the existence of God, there's no better place to start with them than the reasons for the Big Bang Theory, uh, the reasoning behind the expanding universe, uh, what happened to uh, Immanuel Kant and, and some of the discoveries that were made after him, that to use that information and to say that, hey, that some of the very top scientists are saying that, uh, that no, that uh, matter is not eternal. That uh, the whole atheist position is based on the premise that matter is eternal. That it, that it, and now, uh, all evidence is saying that matter is very, very finite, and it's not eternal. And then uh, another thing, uh, an interesting uh, observation that one scientist made was the fact that we know that in the law of gravity that mass attracts. If matter is eternal and you just continue to go out there and you, you constantly have stars and stars and stars and stars, and so to the point that you have an infinite amount of matter, the end result was that you would have too much gravitational force and it would all come together. And so the very fact that we have an expanding universe instead of one that is being pulled together is evidence in itself that there is not an infinite amount of matter. There, is a, there was a starting point and then everything's expanded and we don't have an infinite part of matter. Well, all I'm using on that is not, not trying to get so much into all of that other than the fact that there are people out there in the scientific realm, there are people in other realms who have come up with materials that are very favorable when it comes to presenting evidence for the existence of God and also evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. For example, the book None of These Diseases was written by a doctor who had made the observation that uh, uh, this health code that was given in the Law of Moses was one that could not be improved on if you were to give the same situation and didn't have refrigeration and whatnot and had to live the way those people did. That, uh, that the whole point, his whole point was, where did Moses get this information? Well, he couldn't have written that book except he was a doctor or had access to all the materials and all that are, you know, by nutritionists and, and, and doctors. But that information was usable to him. So in, in reaching others, that uh, whatever their background, there is materials. If a person is a historian, uh, man, there's no better place to start than the fact that of all books of antiquity, there's none so verified by archaeological discoveries as, as the Bible. If a person's background is in literature, there's things in the manuscripts and all. But suffice it to say that wherever that individual is at, there is material that would be good to start with that person. Now, let's come up to our present time. We've just All we've looked at is that in going through Acts, and we could have turned to a number of examples in the Gospels, people were always approached exactly where they were at. Uh, that wherever they were at, uh, they, were, they were approached, and, and then they began from that point. All right, let's look at right now 20th century America. And from the standpoint of not where everybody's at, but where the majority of people are at, according to all the surveys. Number one, according to all the surveys, 95% of our population claim to believe in God. Uh, 95%. In other words, that means that, that uh, 
that when we study all the sophisticated material and everything like that, that's fine. We want to keep doing it. It strengthens your faith. There are atheists that need to be reached. There's material that needs to be counteracted. But the fact remains that the evidence for a creator is so overwhelming to the mind of the majority of people that 95% of them in our educated society are believers in God. All right, point number two. In our society, in the United States, according to the latest Gallup survey, 86% of the population claim to believe, at least intellectually, in Jesus and, and to claim to at least have a certain amount of respect for the inspiration of the Bible. That's 86% of the population. So that says that most of the people that we meet out there, even though they may be walking totally in the world, most of them do believe in God, and most of them at least have some degree of faith, at least enough to believe the possibility uh, that he is. Well, then the question becomes, if so many of them believe in God, and if so many of them have at least some degree of faith in Jesus, and, and, and they, everybody's aware of the fact of at least he claimed to be raised from the dead, why are more of those people in church? And why are more of them coming to hear our sermons? Why are more of them coming to our Bible studies? Uh, why is it so difficult to, to get them in uh, religious discussions? Uh, why is it that maybe you can talk with them one-on-one -on -one and they're just nice people and they will talk about religion, but then you invite them to the church and it's a turnoff. Uh, I mean, it's just a turnoff the minute you start talking about the, the church. But probably it's a combination, maybe of two things. I'm sure a lot of times people would say they believe when really, really they don't believe. Don't you think a lot of people say they believe in God or believe in Jesus, but they really don't? And I think most believe in God. I don't not keep in mind now. Belief is is degrees. Right. And so no, I don't. I don't. I'm not saying that everybody has a strong belief in God, but I believe that most people at least believe strong enough they believe the evidence favors, you know, there being a God. I, I think a lot of times that's just the thing, maybe the thing that, you know, they, would, that's, they feel like that's the thing to say, that people, the end thing. But and then too, in our a lot society, of times it's just because people don't want to repent, right? Just don't want to change. Well, that, that becomes a factor too. I think there are that uh, you, you had, but then, even on the repentance, there's always been a, a certain percentage that did not want to repent. But I don't know that that would be any higher now than it was in the first century. You know, just like a lot of those people didn't want to repent. In other words, when 3,000 obeyed, there were a whole lot more that didn't obey. So a lot of them didn't. Uh, I believe there's a lot of people out there that are decent people who do believe in God and who are concerned about their children, families, etc., and who are not going to church. And when you invite them, or not coming to church, I know I talk to people that that uh, impress me as decent people, who do believe in God and all. And yet, when I invite them to service, they're not there. You know, I can invite them to service, and they and, and they even and when even when it comes to a Bible study, they will shy away from a formal study. Now we can talk about religion. I've got several friends that I can talk about it and all, but when it gets down to a formal study, they tend to tend to shy away. I think on the, uh, in, in the church as a whole, now, let's, let's, before we go any further, let's look at the church. When we say the church, keep in mind we're using this in a big general sense, that although we said that we're not reaching out and converting, some churches are. 
there are some churches that are converting a lot of people. And, and there are some uh, places where a lot of people are being regularly reached. And so we, uh, that on the one hand, a lot of groups are diminishing in number. There are those that are actually increasing uh, in number, and there are some individual churches that are growing. I think that, uh, that the average person out there in our society does not look on the church as being relative to his situation. I think when they come to our services that they don't walk off with the feeling that their needs are being met. That uh, they, they come to our services as people who do, don't have the same kind of belief that we've got in God. Obviously, it's not as strong. They, they haven't come in contact with the sophisticated arguments. Or anything, but they do. They, they have a, a certain degree of belief in God and, and they have a certain amount of respect or they wouldn't even come to the service in the first place, and, they, and, and they're not willing to be dogmatic, most of them, and say, no, Jesus is not the Son of God. I think most of them would allow for at least the possibility that he is. But when they come to our services, their needs are, their problems in their marriages. We've got all kinds of divorces. Uh, we've got people living together uh, outside of marriage. Uh, homosexuality is a, is a problem. Uh, there's problems with their children. Uh, look at the article, go to the magazine. I think the best way to find out where people's interests are and where their needs is to go to the magazine articles because uh, the books deal with just, uh, you know, a lot are the male-female relationship. I mean, you, I don't believe you can pick up a woman's magazine that there's not articles in there dealing with the husband-wife relationship. Notice how many articles have to do with their children. How many articles have to do with just uh, relationships, period. And notice how many articles have to do with health. Just, just physical health and well, well-being. Uh, how many articles that have to do with all that's involved in in our society, and just simply existing? And how many articles that have to do with whatever's involved in in happiness and all? And so here they come, or we meet them out there, and this person has problems with their children. Uh, they're having problems with their mate. Uh, maybe they've already been through a divorce, or they're going through one, or they're about to go through one. Uh, more than 50% of the marriages out there, uh, at least one of the partners has been unfaithful already in the marriage, and there's problems in that marriage as a result of that person having been unfaithful. So here they come, and I think that a lot of the times that we are simply not meeting the needs that these individuals have. And, I, and another thing, the uh, people out there that are in the world and are transient and whatnot, I believe they're looking for friends. And, and they're looking for a type of people, a decent type of people that they can involve themselves with and have relationships and all. And what they're finding many times when they come to the church and all, we want them to come back to service. But we don't necessarily want to get involved in their lives. That uh, they come and they've got their problems and we want them to come back Wednesday night. We want them to come back Sunday night but we don't necessarily want to get involved in their lives. And, and we can see problems, you know, there. And, and we can see that maybe getting involved in this life is, is going to be getting ourselves involved in, in handling some problems and helping them out with some problems. It's going to take some time and all. And so that what we do is the typical person that comes to service can expect to be invited back to the study. Okay, they walk into the Bible study. There's a good chance that if they walk in, like to my Wednesday night study, we're studying Acts. Well, maybe here's a person with no background in the Bible whatsoever, 
and we're going through here studying Acts. Or we might be studying Romans or Philippians or whatever. And I have sat in classes where that if I were not already a Christian and a believer, in all honesty, it would have been boring to me because it was just a matter of everybody, well, now what is he saying? I think he's saying this. And somebody else says, I think he's saying such and such. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, man, all these people got their thoughts on what that person's saying, and no one of them, obviously, are, are sure about it. You know, and you think of how many times that, that is the case. That's the entire study. I think this, and somebody else says, I think this, and somebody else says, I think this, and, well, then we move over. You know, and, well, then we've got two, two or three possible interpretations here, and we, we go on down. Uh, I believe that, uh, that when you think of the teaching of Jesus that most of his teaching was done in respect to whatever their situation was and the questions. And he was going out of their way to meet needs. And if you've got somebody that you want to reach for Christ, and you know that one of the things that, for example, let's say that person's got a divorce in their past. They know what Christians believe on divorce. And so I'm saying that if you look on that as a touchy issue, and you say, I'm just not going to talk about divorce and remarriage and all because I might offend anybody. I think that's the very thing that that person needs to talk about. That he wants to know, is there, is there any possibility that I can ever be right with God? Or if the marriage is not good, you know, is there any possibility that I can have a better marriage than what I've got? Or if they're, if they're having problems with their child, I think they're wanting to know, is there, is there any answers that you actually have? Can you give me any help? Uh, when it comes to, to handling the children. And I think that we need to, to make it clear that, that Christ is in every part of our lives, that in our relation with our mate and with our children and with all we come in contact with, and that we literally believe that all the answers are there. And I think that if we're not willing to get involved in people's lives, I don't believe we are going to be successful. I just don't. I think we're going to have to be willing to invite people into our homes and, and have them in for refreshments and, and get to know them and show an interest in them and that we're concerned and care about them. And then as you have that interaction, they get an opportunity to see your marriage and to see your family. Uh, they see something to Christianity that's beyond just simply going to the, going to the church building. But I think all of that is, is going to be important. Uh, turn over to... Uh, Proverbs. I think this is a. Do you, do you think the church, though, in terms of its regular worship services, should be geared to meet those kind of needs? Or, or are you saying that, that we should meet those needs through becoming our friends and, and helping them outside? Because. You understand what my question is? Yeah. I think as a, when we worship, obviously, when we come together on Sunday morning, 98% of your people there are Christian and their children. And I think that, no, I think that we're there to worship and the material ought to be designed primarily to meet the needs of the Christians that's there. And, of course, they need. But in the process of, in other words, I'm saying a lot of times the church is not meeting the needs of its own members. Yeah, and that, uh, that these people are sitting there. I know I'm going back to the type of preaching I did for years. Uh, that uh, these people are sitting there with, with problems in their life, uh, with various things, and uh, 
we're emphasizing doctrinal matters and being in the right church and doing things exactly right. Now, that's been our emphasis, you know. Well, then they go to the church down the street, and, and what separates them and makes them another entity is, is their belief in premillennialism and once saved, always saved. And another church down the street, what sets them apart and makes them a denomination is their belief about the Holy Spirit and the gifts. And so if they visit there, they're going to hear a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit and they can get the Holy Spirit. If they visit over here, they're going to hear a lot of talk about once saved, always saved, and premillennialism. If they visit this group over here, they're going to hear a lot of talk about why they keep the Sabbath day and the, the eating of meats and the second advent of Christ and, and things of that nature, you know. If they visit the Mormon church, they're going to learn about why that is the true church and everything. The emphasis, I'm not saying they don't have other things, but the emphasis will, will be there. So what we wind up in all these groups is people that are deeply committed because of their background to that group more than they are actually Christian in, in being converted to Christ and looking at Christianity as something where you're striving to emulate Christ in your life and you're coming to worship God as a result of his gift of Christ. And I'm saying when they come in our midst, they ought to see a people that are there because of their belief in Jesus and their belief in his resurrection. And, and the Lord's Supper, I believe, ought to be more than just a, a quick statement. Uh, that I think that I really believe that, that some passages ought to be read, it ought to be discussed, and, and we ought to have emphasis on the, the resurrection and things like that, and the song service and everything you know, ought to be geared in that direction. But to get further on, on answering your question, in meeting the needs of, of the church, that's also going to be logical and I think appealing to those from the, out, from the outside but I'm saying it's not sufficient just to invite that person back to service. That if this person comes, uh, comes to the service that's a stranger, I think there ought to be an effort on the part of the members to invite that person to their home and, and, and say that, you know, I'd really like to get to know you better or whatever, and, and it, whether it's on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or whatever, invite them over for a, for a cup of coffee and some refreshment or invite them to dinner. Uh, sometime, but make some effort to get to know that person. Or if you're if you're having some activity with Christians, that if you can include them, uh, you know, on it. And here again, if you've got a regular home Bible study going, that's you know a good thing to include them in in that particular point. But I think there has to make, be made some effort to show an interest in that person and to and to get to know them. And then as you get to know them. Then you begin to find out where the needs of that person is. And, and the preachers up there, just looking at that person out there, you may be preaching on the thing that is way out in left field so far as that person's needs because you're dealing with that congregation and the people you know. But I'm saying that the more you get to know, the more that you can not only zero in on that person's needs himself, but you can talk to whoever the minister is and help him to zero in you know, on the needs of that person. Paul, do you think... Uh... A lot of times when people come to the service that aren't Christian, they've got some need in their life that motivated them to come to church. Yeah. I think most people now that come, come because they're invited. Like in the, the surveys that's been taken, 85% of all visitors that come, come because somebody invited them. Uh, just like over here, you know, we, don't, we haven't had any great number of visitors by a long shot. But just like when uh, last year I had a, 
couple of teachers that visited for a while. In fact, one of them, when we start back to school, I assume will be coming again. But I specifically talked to them. I specifically invited them. Uh, we've been having a lady that's visited the last four or five weeks. You know that Laura Bell. Is, Laura Bell is specifically talked with them, specifically invited them. The first time I went to church, I was specifically invited. You know. You, uh, well, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that? I mean, there's a lot of people get asked to go to church and they don't come, but then that when if they're having a problem in their life that they feel like you know they see it that they need. They may need to, to seek a relationship with God, so then that prompts them to go ahead and come, come when they were, wouldn't come before. Right. I think that when you invite that person, the biggest percent are not going to be there. The one that does come, not only have you invited him, but I don't think he'd be there if he wasn't at least curious and looking to have some. I believe the very fact that anybody walks into a restaurant is hungry. And if you walk into a, a car dealer, he assumes that you're in the market for a car. If you go into a drugstore, there's the assumption that you're interested in, in something there. And I think when somebody walks into our building, that in most cases, we ought to assume that there is an interest. They, they, if there was no interest at all, that they would not be there. And that uh, many times we may not know exactly what the need is. But first we had to invite them, but even though we invited them, I don't believe they'd be there, except there was a need. I mean, and, and you consider that, number one, everybody knows they're going to die. And uh, that, that there, there has to be some kind of thing there. Well, then when they get there, I think that we ought to be trying to get to know them so we can find out what their, the needs so that we can, uh, you know, that uh, meet that particular need. All right, now, look at all the experiences of a bad nature it's possible for a person to have before they even come to us. Uh, what if uh, we look at this guy out here that's, all involved in the world and doesn't go to church at all, even though he says he believes in God and all. But what if his only experience was going to a service and they had a revival type thing and, and he saw them trying to drag people down the aisle. Uh, they got emotionally worked up. They, the preacher made him feel very uncomfortable by being very persuasive. Well, I can see how a person can have a few experiences like that and make the decision that he wants no more. So that maybe just when you invite a person like that to just assure him that we don't do that kind of thing, that we're not going to embarrass you. Nobody's going to try to overly persuade you. Uh, the sermon will end in a, in a polite way, and although there will be an opportunity to respond or something, that, that nobody will put any pressure on whatsoever. I think that, uh, that if we know that that is in their background, that just like when I invite people to the study here, I tell them that I'm, I'm not out proselyting uh, or anything. This is a pure 100% Bible study. And, and then what happens with the information is between them and God, you know, once they get the information. And then you might uh, find out that something else is a problem, that uh, I've heard sermons that were absolutely pathetic, uh, that there, there was no organization, there was no plan, there was no nothing. The guy was just up there talking about what the Spirit had laid on his heart. Well, I put myself in the position, if I had heard much of that, uh, that, and I think what we have to do, uh, when I initially was converted and started going to the, uh, the, you know, the, the churches of Christ, like in, in Kentucky and all, I visited other groups. And it wasn't that I was persuaded on everything about the doctrines uh, in the church that, that really kept me going back and all so far as interest in the lesson. 
But what caught me right away is the difference in the sense that their preachers presented logical lessons that made an appeal to my mind. They, they didn't, nobody tried to drag me down an aisle. The lesson was well planned and organized. And I would contrast that to where people were just emotional and talked and, and just seemed to say whatever came on the top of their head or anything like that. And so the other had much more of an, an appeal to me. And so I think some of these people out here that maybe have been turned off at some misrepresentations of Christianity, that if we could get them in to hear logical presentations of the gospel and, and then to be in logical Bible studies where, where whoever is teaching the class has honestly studied the material and thought it out, and it's just not a matter of, well, sister so-and-so, what does that verse say to you? And brother so-and-so, what does that verse say to you? But they, they're actually studying it just like you would any other subject. Then I think there may be, you know, people out there that we could reach that we don't even we don't even know about, and they don't they don't know about us. Yeah, some people though they have they have a need for a certain level of emotional mm -hmm. that they don't find in, in like say the Church of Christ. For right. I mean, there's you know, nobody says anything. It's like everybody's doing. Everybody's not right. listening. And, um, yeah, oh. just don't seem that. Okay, that's good, Mark. I think what you brought out, because see, I believe we're falling short there. That I think what happened as a result of of seeing the uh, the holiness and and the in a service that seems to revolve almost completely around the the emotions and all. That within the group that we've been with, they've gone to the other extreme, and we actually uh, fight back emotion. You know, we just don't show much emotion in our services. That, uh, and, and whatever the reason, but our services, uh, I'm talking about, again, not your individual church or any individual church. I'm talking about the fellowship I've been involved with over the years uh, is very reserved. There's not a lot of emotions uh, shown. Uh, if everybody in there really loves God and loves Jesus, you know, you'd have to kind of figure it out. Because, you know, it, it really isn't coming out. And well, it's real taboo to... All right, and then you go to the services like, uh, take right up here on this uh, mountain. You go to some of the services. Number one, they make a much bigger to-do about the song service than we do. They'll have a, a quartet, a sextet, and a solo, and people that are good singers, and I mean good singers. And they'll sing these songs in a very moving way. And then they have the congregational singing, too. Well, see, personally, I think that's good. Uh, that I, I, do, I don't even know the reasoning behind that. Uh, now, with us, we can say amen after the service on Sunday morning and then have a choir sing or a solo or a sextet, but we've got to have that amen first and end one service and start another one. We, we, and I'm saying that they had singers, like with David, they had their singers and things like that, that uh, I believe that, that when you go and you can see how that the singing can be very moving. Uh, singing's like anything else. We don't all have equal talent, uh, talent in that area. And I enjoy hearing good singers and choirs and all sing gospel music and then the congregational singing too. So I think we miss out on something there that we could learn. All right, another thing you notice is that in some of their services, they have more involvement. Our service revolves almost entirely around the preacher. And I think the involvement is good that, uh, for example, I visited one service up here, and after, as they came towards the end, the preacher wanted to know if there's anybody there that had something, had been studying anything he'd like to share, 
or had anything happen that of a spiritual nature he'd like to share, one man stood up and says, I've been reading such and such, and says, this verse just was uh, just impressed on my mind. So he read that verse, made a few comments, and sat down. Uh, another person stood up, and, and something had happened in his life, and he believed that God had answered his prayers and whatnot, and, and he thanked the congregation for praying for him, and, and he sat down. And then somebody else spoke up, you know, on some particular point. But I mean, the, 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 the worship was very personal. And there were more people than just the preacher that, you know, had a part in it. And, and the, in fact, the, the whole service was some that had, you know, quite a few that spoke out. Well, again, obviously the first century church was that way. Because when Paul wrote the church at Corinth, he told them to speak one at a time. And that obviously when they had those miraculous gifts, there wasn't just one person up there preaching. That he said that uh, what Paul was rebuking them on is apparently they were a little chaotic. But he was telling them to speak one at a time. And he said, uh, you know, when you have a revelation, get up and speak. And so as long as they spoke one at a time, then that was fine. But the indication was there were a number of people that spoke. Okay, the church had its origin in the Jewish synagogue. When Paul goes into the synagogue with these people, he, he's not the, they didn't know he was coming. And so what happens? They look over to Paul and ask him, does he have anything to say? Any word of exhortation or anything to say? And so Paul just stands up and preaches him a sermon about Christ. But regularly, when he went into those synagogues on the Sabbath, they asked him if he had anything he'd like to say, and he used that as an opportunity to talk. Well, despite all our talk about freedom and everything and, and a, an open-type service, we don't really give anybody a chance to talk much. And if they said anything that was different, we'd make sure they never got a chance again. And... You read about all those debates in the Jewish synagogue. How did they have those debates except they had a more of an open forum type thing where the people spoke out and asked questions? And, and then remember when Jesus, as his custom would was, would go to the synagogue and then he stood up and read the scriptures. Well, how do you go about your breaking tradition, though? I think tradition is one of the well, hardest things to break. But I think one of the things we have to do, Mark, is point out, and I've not been successful with it. I, I'm, I'm saying that it's one thing when you break it yourself and to break it for others is, is something else. But uh, tradition is a difficult thing, but I think one thing we can point out, we're not going anywhere. That, uh, that churches as a whole are just sitting and dying. I mean, they're, they're, you, how many meetings do you read about where a lot are baptized or, or how many churches have a good personal work program where people are being baptized or anything like that? Or how many people are coming back to our services? You know, once they've been, we're just simply not reaching. So I think that, that a starting point might be that what we did and worked in the past because of the, the situation and the environment is obviously not working right now. I mean, something's going to have to be done. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, you know from your own experience how upset people get when you break something some kind of tradition. I know that at our church a couple of weeks ago, between the time that class started and and the actual worship started, there's a there's a, a retarded man, he's about fifty years old, and the congregation sang happy birthday to him. Well Some got disturbed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I thought it was great, you know. Well. But um, dad being an elder, you know, he always catches catches the flack after church and you know these people were sincere I mean they're like 
well, our God's a jealous God, and I think that, you know, anytime we do anything to distract from, you know, the worship of Him is, you know, bad, and, you know, they weren't, you know, just trying to, you know, they were sincere, you know, in trying to, to, to bring up their opinion about it, but, you know, I, I disagreed with it. I think that's the uh, kind of thing you get into, you Yeah. Know. I think uh, some of the things that's... Uh, it's like there's one church in Lebanon that they have their service on Sunday and then on Sunday night, like we have traditional Sunday morning, Sunday night, they encourage the people to meet in home Bible studies and then they have the service there at the building for those that you know feel obligated to that building in some sense. Well, I know I thought even over there at Collins, you know, when we get there, we are so few on Sunday night. I mean, it's just, we just, uh, you know, less than half generally of what's there that morning. And I think, well, I wonder what it would be if, if on Sunday night we just had four or five different Bible studies going uh, in homes, and then you invite your neighbor, uh, you know, on, on something like that. And so then Sunday morning, uh, make a bigger to-do over it. Uh, have, have a part for the uh, Lord's Supper, uh, and maybe make the service more, you know, meaningful or more time in some ways. Uh, Another congregation, I know where Rubel Shelley preaches in uh, Nashville, their Sunday service, they don't have the Bible class, but their service is an hour and a half to two hours. And what they do, they have it divided up in three parts. They have singing as a real big part of their service. And then they have, have also preaching, and then the Lord's Supper is just not a quick partaking of the supper. They read something, uh, they talk about it, and they really make it clear that all the worship is centering around... Uh, uh, the remembrance of the death, burial, and resurrection. So the service goes for better than an hour and a half. All right, but then on Sunday night, they have Bible classes. And so you've got all the teenagers and things like that. Well, there again, I think that's a good practice. When you, If you go into a Bible class situation, you're more apt to get your individual need met. And just like, uh, say, our service on Sunday night, if somebody happens to bring in a visitor that's got some children and they haven't been going to church, I know they're going to be bored at listening to me. I know it. I mean, I can stand up there, and here I am uh, studying on some particular subject that's designed primarily for adults and, and high, higher teenagers, and here's somebody come in, and, and so these, here are these young children that have no experience with church and, other than somebody that's over their head and boring them. Or like when, uh, you know, the family we've got coming now, the lady has two kids that comes on Sunday morning. Well, they don't come to the Bible study. They come to the sermon. Well, I, I've watched the woman, and she pays very good attention during the sermon. But I know I'm boring those little kids. Well, see, whether or not she comes back has a whole lot to do with those little kids. So I'd like, but the member that is inviting her does not come to the Bible class. She just comes to the sermon. And so she invites that lady, and that lady comes to the sermon with her, and here are those two kids. Well, see, I'd love for those kids to go into the Bible class where they was taught the Bible in an interesting way on their level. All right, the same, see, on Sunday night, I, actually, I like the, I would like it to have the number and all where we had Bible classes on Sunday night. And that I was teaching the adults out there, and then you've got everybody, so if somebody shows up with children, you can teach them and work with them on their level. Because I know it's boring to a kid. Uh, I know my early experiences with church, I always thought the sermon was boring. You know, you just sit there, and that guy loses you after about, five minutes, you know. Well, on, on that lady that's coming in the morning, you say somebody's inviting her, you, 
think it's appropriate to say something to somebody like that? So you know, it would really be good for the lady that's coming. Yeah. You'd come on to uh -huh. Sunday school. And I think you have to be very careful because some if they're not a strong Christian, obviously they're not real strong if they've been just coming that. Uh, that the weaker the Christian, the easier it is to offend them. You know, and I, so I thank you. But yes, we do it just like uh, we have, like we have another family that uh, comes and uh, that uh, the tape here, you're taking it with you and keeping it there. But you know, when Joe uh, comes to our study a lot and Joe's got small children, well, most of the time, Joe does not get there for Bible class. He gets there for sermon. Well, I know that little boy's and that little girl's bored out of their mind. And so then... There, what I want is that on Sunday morning, I want that child to be saying to their parent, we want to go to Bible study, you know. And so I want them to come to bring it to Bible study, you know. And then if, if Bible study is interesting enough, uh, they'll tolerate me, you know, even though it's, it's over their head and everything. At least they'll have that positive experience. But see, I, I would like even myself even to have enoughs where on Sunday night. Now, they used to have a program over here when they were uh, more numerous where they worked with, some of them worked with the children, you know, on Sunday night. But I, I would like for the, you know, any young person to be able to sit in a class on his level, you know, and, and I think a class situation, uh, and then again, the fact that everybody that's teaching a class really prepares for that class has a whole lot to do with it, too. I mean, you can have a class that's no good, but if, if everybody that is, it, man, if anybody can teach David and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and some of these other characters in such a way that's interesting to a child. I mean, I don't know anything they read or see on TV that's more exciting than, uh, than those stories, and yet you're getting all those good principles across. But I think that we ought to, basically through all of it, I think if we're interested in reaching people, if, if you were operating a restaurant, you would be doing the things you need to do to get somebody in there. You can have the best food around, but people have got to know about it, and, and they've got to come in, and, and, and you've got to meet the needs of the, of the people and, or with a business or anything. And I think the same with us, that it's spiritual needs we're concerned with, but I think that we ought to think about our services from the standpoint of, of meeting the needs of the Christians and then reaching out and meeting the needs of the others with the material. I believe that's exactly what Jesus did and the apostles. What do you think about... I saw something on TV. There's some Baptist church or something in, in Houston or something. Anyway, it's it's a huge church. It's, I can't even remember what the figure was. It seems like it was in the thousands of people that come into this church. A couple of several thousand or whatever. And they've got a bowling alley and, and they have aerobics programs and they've got uh, uh, whatever, Meals on Wheels. I mean, they got every kind of program in the world. I mean, you know. I think a like attracts like. Personally, that now on that kind of thing, I don't think there's anything wrong with a bowling alley or anything like that, or, or Christian bowling. But where I have a problem in the way they do some of that, Mark, is that that we have a diminishing number of missionaries right now, and we've had all kinds of missionaries get discouraged and come out of the field because they got tired of begging for money, and and we're not doing what we should do. We we need to be sending Bibles to Russia and behind the Iron Curtain all. I have problems with a person saying, here's a certain percentage of my money that I'm going to give to the Lord. And then you turn right around and take and build a gymnasium and a bowling alley. I'm saying, I don't believe that's honest. I think that that bowling alley is for me and the gymnasium. So 
if people want to set aside a certain percentage of their money that goes to the Lord to preach the gospel and all, and then over and above that, say, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had a place for uh, you know, our kids to get together and play and do those things and, and where Christians could invite people and all like that? Well, then I'd, to me, I'd put that in the same category as buying a TV and using it the right way or, or whatever, you know. I'm saying I think it can be done in the right way, but I, I personally would have real problems. If I'm in a congregation, I have a certain set percentage of my money that I'm going to give, and then I have others, you know, that I, but I've got a, a certain percentage of my money that's set aside. Well, I don't want it used to build a bowling alley. That, uh, if I'm going to have a part in building a bowling alley, then uh, I'll take uh, part of my money that's set aside for entertainment you know, and, and, and build the bowling alley and all with that. But I just don't, uh, in fact, to be honest with you, I've always had problems with real elaborate church buildings. And I've had problems with steeples. That uh, I just, uh, that I think it's good to have a comfortable place to worship, you know, where it's comfortable and, and you can get everybody in and everything like that. But to, to spend thousands of dollars that you supposedly have given to God uh, on, on just... Uh, something that's way out elaborate, I have problems with that personally. In order to change that kind of mentality, it just takes a period of time, doesn't it? To, I mean, I'm thinking about, just as an example, all these good materials and Christian evidences and things are not going to have an impact, a reasonable impact, until years and years down the road when all these people that are now seeing it for the first time begin to reach out and touch other people. And our society is not going to turn around like that. No. It's going to take... So in the same way, it's like you were saying about the tradition, maybe you don't introduce, you know, rearranging the pews instead of looking like a, you know, whatever, like a <laughs> courtroom or whatever. Well, <laughs> around the... I don't know. I mean, you that's a good example, up. Mark. The, why in the world we'd have... We, we are, line them up, one right after the other, all the way back, when the ideal way is a fan shape. Facing, yeah. Right, where you've got, got people, we know that, you know, and That's yet... Uh, in Atlanta, our church is famous. Yeah. Well, let, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. First of all, what were you going to talk about in Proverbs? <laughs> okay, <laughs> what I was saying in Proverbs on, on, our, on the thing about meeting the needs, uh, I believe that... Uh, and, um, turn over to Proverbs 1. Ready, okay. Okay. So Proverbs 1, in verse 22, tw verse 20. Now you got your... <laughs> uh, I believe that uh, that we do not we as Christians do not do a good enough job in conveying to people just how perfect that God's law is that that it's that it is absolutely the only successful way to live your life that if you we leave the impression that the people out there like Johnny uh, Carson and Liz Taylor. They're really having all the fun. You know, they may be losing their soul, but they're having all the fun. Well, see, I don't buy that. I believe that Christians are also having the fun. That uh, we ought to be conveying that the only happy marriages are based on Christian principles. That the only people successfully rearing their children are doing it on, on Christian principles. And that the people that are really happy and contented and successful with their life are doing it because that that law is perfect. And I think that Maybe we lose more of our young people than we should because we don't do a good idea, of, uh, a good thing of getting the We just say, don't do this, you know. You're not supposed to have sex until after marriage or, or adultery, sin, etc. Instead of sitting down and, and saying, hey, uh, let's look at the world. 
you know, look, look at these kids that, that get pregnant outside of marriage and the kind of life they live. Look at the diseases that's out there. Look at these relationships that people have where they're very permissive and all. And then go ahead and point out that the, the relationship where you have one man, one woman, until death do you part, and neither have been sexually active before they get married, that that is actually the ideal, that if you can make it like that, that is the best way, you're going to have the best relationship, you're going to have the best marriage, and they are really the happy and contented people, you know, in, in, in society. Uh, in this proverb, all the way through there, he talks about wisdom personified, and fools are people that hate knowledge and all. And in verse 23, he said, If you responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when your calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat of the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. All right, then all through this second and third chapter, he's talking about all the benefits that come from obeying the laws of God. And, for example, in verse 4, uh, look at verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Uh, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What will be the result? Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Okay? The secret to a good life, you can pray all day for a good life, for God to make it good, and he's not going to make it good in some mystical way. The way God makes our life good is through his perfect law. And, and to the extent that 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 law becomes embedded on our hearts and becomes part of our personality and we enact that law in our relationship with our mate, in our relationship with our children, our relationship with others, to that extent, we're going to live a successful life. And I'm saying that, that what we need to do a better job of conveying to people is that, you know, you've got all these magazines out there with all their theories, but, but the answers are here and it'll stand the test. And I'm saying those ways, not only can they be proven and shown in our own society, but they're logical. They actually sound right to the mind as they hear them. And I think that we need to do a better job at, at you know, applying them to our lives, making it clear to people that there's not something special about us other than the law. We've just simply got a, a perfect code to, to live by. And I think that... Uh, the Bible needs to be thought of not as a book of church doctrines, but as a book that contains the, the right way to live your life. And, and, and of course, in the final analysis, eternal life through Christ. You want to ask your question and they're eating something. <laughs> I could. I bet everybody's a lifespan. Or are you rather do it now? No, I'm just fine. Well, heck, you're lying. <laughs> I, I'm not in any hurry. No. I just thought maybe you don't need it straight. You know, and the involvement and all that... Uh, I think that uh, just like, uh, you know, with Ed 
Bowen, when I when we had him serve so see when I invited him and he came and all, well then I invited him over the house. He didn't invite him to come. And he'll come in and he'll sit and talk for as long as I want to talk. Well see, I know his situation and, and he's lonely, he's uh, uh, you know, he's going through a divorce now. He's got a lot of problems in his life that I'm saying Ed's name is Legion. That uh, he wouldn't come if he wasn't uh, interested in something like But I'm saying there's a lot like him that uh, when they come, though, I believe they, they need more than just come to the service. They need a Christian to take an interest in them. Uh, Steve, uh, my son, up there in West Virginia, you know, and all by himself. Well, regularly, since he's been up there, there's been Christian families that have had him over to eat and to talk with him and, and get to know him and everything like that. And that's the most positive thing I guess he feels about that place is just the, the church, you know, up there now. And I think when, when Christians come in with, from other areas or when people come in that's not a Christian, that we need to be willing to, to try and get involved and to have them over and to get to know them and to try and convey to them how that, you know, Christ actually meets. He meets our needs and he meets theirs. And I think even in the church, if we don't watch ourselves, we can get so wrapped up in enjoying one another's company that we don't make an effort. Uh, the student center is a good example. I think that's the biggest thing. I watched the student, like I was in charge of outreach last year.